Welcome back to Voices in Bioethics. I'm Jennifer Cohen, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Silver Sergenian to the podcast. Since 2016, Silva Sergenian has served as the volunteer coordinator in charge of training and certification for the Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention Program, known by its acronym SAVI, and for the Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner Program, known by its acronym as SAFE, at the Mount Sinai Hospital Systems. Prior to her work at Mount Sinai, Silva worked for eight years as assistant to the chairman of the Department of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. Prior to that, she externed at the Bronx Children's Psychiatric Center, working with adolescents and children who had suffered from major mental illness or were adjudicated by the Bronx Family Court for Sexual Offenses. She has her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin in criminal justice and psychology and a master's degree in forensic psychology from John Jay College. Thank you again, Silver, for speaking with me today about your work. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Why don't we start by you telling us about the Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention, the SAVI program. When was it put in place and why was it needed? Well, SAVI has been around since 1984. We've been a part of Mount Sinai that whole time. It came into being because of the need that was seen in our emergency department to support our survivors of sexual assault. We've obviously expanded since that time and now work with all types of survivors of gender-based violence. But it was really just because the nature of the trauma that these patients, these survivors had gone through, really necessitated having somebody there by their side that understood what to expect from their visit in the emergency department, that understood the need for the support and the just extra compassion for these particular patients and survivors. Okay, so the SAVI program is based in emergency rooms, and is it now at many different hospitals within the Mount Sinai system? Yes, so SAVI has actually 10 different sites that we serve, particularly our volunteer advocate program serves 10 different sites. We are in the Mount Sinai Main Hospital on the Upper East Side. We also have our advocates going to Mount Sinai Queens, Mount Sinai Brooklyn. We do have agreements with some of the city hospitals. So we also send advocates to Harlem Hospital, Metropolitan Hospital. We do send advocates to Elmhurst Hospital in Queens and Queens Hospital Center. And then we also have advocates attending to cases at Lenox Hill Hospital on the Upper East Side. Wow. And how does the SAVI program differ from the SAFE program? Right. So SAVI is our organization as a whole. And we have under that the emergency department advocates, but we also have our SAFE program. And SAFE stands for Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner. And that program at Mount Sinai Hospital was certified by the Department of Health in 2006. And that is specifically where we have specially trained medical staff that will respond to cases of sexual assault that come into the emergency department. And their special training allows them to give a very trauma-informed exam and then also do the evidence collection should the person choose to pursue it through the legal system. Okay. So you've already started to touch on it, but can you expand a little bit more on the types of services that savvy volunteer advocates provide, the types of services that the SAFE 
representatives provide? What specifically do they do when they find themselves with someone who's come into the ER? Right. Well, the savvy advocates are there to help survivors both of sexual assault and intimate partner violence, whereas the safe examiners are specifically working with survivors of sexual assault. As far as the services that the advocates provide, they are the ones that are there to really, first and foremost, support that survivor and that patient emotionally while they're there in the ED. And beyond that, they're there as a resource to help connect them to services, to ongoing referrals. They're also there to kind of just help them understand and navigate what are their options, what are their rights as a patient, answer questions about what kind of treatment they want to receive, and empower them really to take part in their care in a way that really gives them back the control of their situation. Wow, really powerful. Now, you just touched on two different terms there, and I'd love to have you explain to our audience the different ways that sexual violence presents. So can you talk about the differences between sexual assault, domestic violence, intimate partner violence? Absolutely. The three different types of violence, you start with sexual assault. That can be rape, that can be fondling, it can be harassment, you know, any of that spectrum of sexual-based violence falls under that. As far as domestic violence and intimate partner violence, we specifically as a program focus on intimate partner violence. So domestic violence would be kind of the umbrella term that is used for violence that happens between people that share a household. That could be husband and wife, it could be parent to child or grandparent to grandchild or, you know, anything like that. Intimate partner violence is specifically the violence that occurs within an intimate relationship. So that's typically a current or former partner or somebody who shares children in common with their partner. It can be, like I said, past or present, but there has to have been some piece of intimacy in their relationship. So with intimate partner violence, they needn't be living in the same arrangement. That is correct. And in fact, in New York City, it's not uncommon for people not to share the same residence, but there's still that possibility of violence within that relationship. Right, right, right. Is there different training related to each of those types of sexual violence? So is there specific counseling for the trauma around a sexual assault, you know, a rape, a fondling versus the counseling one would give if the person is in an intimate relationship with the person who has harmed them? Well, we certainly, you know, cover the different dynamics of sexual assault and the dynamics of intimate partner violence. When we have our training for all of our new volunteers that are coming in, we have a 40-hour training that's required by the Department of Health. And in that, we talk about, you know, there are some things that overlap. Some of the trauma responses can be very similar, but there are definitely different concerns that survivors have depending on the type of victimization they're experiencing. For instance, somebody in an intimate partner violence situation, somebody who has an abusive partner, we are often thinking about how can we make sure that that person is as safe as possible in whatever situation they need to return to. We try to be very sensitive in understanding and really trusting that that patient, that survivor is the 
expert in their life and really meet them where they're at. And that can be very different for survivors of sexual assault. There's definitely differences as far as the support that people receive in different situations. I think a lot of people come to understand that survivors of sexual assault are not to blame for being assaulted. And that is not always the case for survivors of intimate partner violence. And I'm not going to say that they're never blamed, but there is a lot of shame and a lot of blame that is put upon survivors within an abusive relationship that I think a lot of questions about, well, why don't you leave? Or how could you stay with this person? And so, you know, we really do talk about that meeting a person where they're at and trying to understand if this person has to go back to a situation that could be violent again, what can we do to make sure they're as safe as possible? Right. And so that's like a little bit different than working with the survivors of sexual assault in that for them, we may be doing a lot of emotional safety planning. We may be doing a lot of information about what are their rights, what are their options. Whereas, you know, with intimate partner violence, it might be a lot of identifying what is safe for them and what options they have, whether they take advantage of those options that night or that day, or whether it's down the line, knowing that those are available. Right. Is the relationship that the savvy advocate has with the person in the ED, is that ongoing or is that limited to their time in the ED? It's very limited to their time in the emergency department. We have uh, pretty specific boundaries in place for our advocates. We want to make sure that they are fully present for the time that that person is in the emergency department, but we also want to make sure that when that patient, that survivor leaves the emergency department, they can rely on the other systems that are in place to support them for their ongoing needs. Got it. We don't expect the advocate to be able to support a survivor ongoing outside of the ED. Right. Uh, Is the survivor immediately made aware that this service is available? And are there some people who decline to have an advocate there for them? So ideally, the survivor should be told immediately when they disclose that they have certain rights. In fact, just within the last several years, New York State passed the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights, and within that includes the right to have an advocate with you while you're seeking medical care. And so they should be informed of that right away as soon as they're identified as, you know, seeking treatment because of sexual assault. Ideally as well for survivors of intimate partner violence, We respond to any intimate partner violence case, any patient that's identified as having experienced intimate partner violence, though there isn't a bill of rights for that, we will provide those services, of course, to those patients. As far as do people decline, it's possible. I would say the majority of folks don't decline having an advocate, Mm. but there are certainly cases where people say, no, I don't want to talk to anybody, and they just come with very specifically in mind what kind of care they would like to have. Right. Is the volunteer there to encourage the person to, say, report their experience to the police or to get psychotherapy or medical care, or is it just to kind of lay out the resources available? So the volunteer is not really there with an agenda to have the survivor or the patient do anything in particular, right? We are there to support them and to re-empower them and to connect them with 
the resources they need to do those two things. And so really we're not coming in saying you should report, you should do X, Y, or Z because we're not that survivor. We don't know what's best in their life for them. And in honesty, there's not always a clear path, right, for reporting to law enforcement. Sometimes people have a bad experience with law enforcement in the past and that gives them hesitation in the present. Or maybe they are just not in a mental space right in that moment to think about it. So we're really not coming in with a push for them to do anything at all. We're really just there to help them understand what those options are that they have and the support that they have surrounding those options. About how many cases does the program see each year? So... As far as like the advocate program, we, across the 10 different sites, each year see on average about 550 cases. Wow. That can fluctuate a little bit, but yeah, that's about the average that we see. And I'm so impressed with the program being welcomed into these emergency rooms, which are very busy and people usually overworked and understaffed. How did the savvy volunteers interact with the clinical staff and the social workers? And what's been the response of the social workers and clinical staff to savvy volunteers in the ER? So the advocates really work as a part of the team, right? They are usually welcomed very warmly to working with these patients in the emergency department because they are there specifically for that one patient and they can dedicate their time and energy to sitting with that patient throughout the time that they're in the emergency department. And that is actually a relief to the medical staff most cases, right? That it allows a person who is well-versed in what are the types of exams that are going to be done or medications or those other options that they may encounter as a patient in the emergency department seeking care after an assault, it allows them to have somebody there that understands what those are and can answer questions and help guide them through that. Yeah. And so really then you're eliminating the need for the patient to you know, have to keep pestering a nurse to get answers to the questions that they have. And that's really helpful, I think, particularly because, you know, when somebody comes into the emergency department, whether it's for a medical event or, uh, you know, in this case, for care after an assault, you may not be thinking in very ordered list of questions that you want to ask, right? And so having somebody that, that can sit with you calmly and be that anchor and that guide where you can say, it just occurred to me I had this question about what the doctor said and have a person that can answer you right in that moment is something I think that is very helpful for our patients. Uh, New York State has an Office of Victim Services, which has victim assistance programs that provide a wide range of services for victims of a lot of different crimes. Can you talk about the relationship, if there is one that Savvy has with the New York State Office of Victim Services? Absolutely. I mean, the Office of Victim Services provides funding to many programs like SAVI across the state of New York. And the funding that they provide allows us to provide services to survivors of violent crime. Particularly, we are contracted to provide the advocacy services and the counseling services is also partially funded by the Office of Victim Services. And that is really what makes it possible for us to train and send our volunteers out to the emergency department to sit with these people 
the amount of money that it takes to train and the amount of money that it takes just to travel to and from the ED or that is funded by the Office of Victim Services who has this money to use in order to serve victims of violent crime. And the idea being as well that the survivor, the victim of that crime should not be responsible for the financial burdens of being a victim. But that also expands to our counseling services that Savvy provides are free of charge because we want to make sure that everybody has access to good trauma-informed counseling, even if they don't have insurance. And so the OVS funding helps with that. Office of Victim Services is also involved in covering some of the expense of the sexual assault forensic exam and the evidence collection and the prophylactic medication that they receive in the emergency department. Such a great service. I can imagine people who have insurance even maybe not wanting to go through that route so that if it's covered outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. That's terrific. All right. Let's turn to some of the ethical issues that arise in your work. And one of the biggest bioethical issues that comes up in every area of medicine is consent. Right. Can you talk about the ways consent comes up in your work? Absolutely. Consent is really of vital importance in the work that we do, because we are talking about people who have experienced an extreme lack of control over what's happening to them or around them. And so we want to make sure that in everything that we do, both in our advocate program and in our safe program, is really based on the consent of the patient of that survivor. It can be challenging, but there are questions where Consent is difficult to obtain, and so there are questions about what do we do in those situations. But ultimately, we really want to focus on what the survivor wants in that moment and really follow that. Now, what happens if someone comes in and they are suffering from mental illness? How does consent play out in that type of a situation? It's a good question. So we do see cases of people that come into the emergency department and are expressing that they have been sexually assaulted and that they want a forensic exam or evidence collection and even having an advocate by their side. And sometimes there are questions. Does having a severe mental illness impact their ability to express what happened to them in a way that's understood by the staff? Does it affect their ability to consent to certain services? And so that is a challenge that we see sometimes. And we also want to be very careful that we're not going to be re-traumatizing somebody in any way. So the question is, how do we navigate what might be a symptom of their severe mental illness versus what is a symptom of their experience of trauma? Not just for minors or for people who have severe mental illness or dementia, but just anybody that may have some question of capacity, right? There are often people in place that are there to protect them, people with power of attorney or people that can make medical decisions for them. But one of the things that I think is really important that we face with our survivors who may have a diminished capacity to consent is that we really, really default to not do anything that's further invasive or disempowering for that survivor, that 
in the case of sexual assault, evidence collection is not a medical procedure. It's not a medical necessity. And so if there's any hesitation that's expressed by someone, we always defer to that person. You know, if a child or somebody with mental illness or dementia bristles at a touch or an attempt to do an exam, we will stop. And we will, even if somebody has power of attorney or the power to make those medical decisions, we will always default to not putting further harm on that person against their will. Yeah. Another critical ethical issue is confidentiality. And I want to talk about how that plays out in your work, because this seems to me an area where the healthcare system and the legal system really intersect. Can you talk about the mandatory reporting laws in New York and how that plays out with savvy volunteers? I'm thinking now specifically in the case of minors, right? people under 18. How does this play out in terms of whether savvy volunteers, well, first of all, if you could just go through what the mandatory reporting laws are and whether savvy volunteers fall into the categories of people who are mandated to report. That's a great question. As far as the mandatory reporting laws, I don't know those in and out as much as, say, some of our social work staff would or that. But what I can say is that the savvy advocates are not mandatory reporters in the same sense that the medical staff are. They hold a different role. We do talk about exceptions for when people would want to share information that is shared with them. But none of our volunteers are ever in the position to, say, call ACS or report to law enforcement without the consent of that patient. All of the mandatory report falls back on the medical staff in that situation. Situations in which we are required to share would be if a patient is expressing that they're going to harm themselves or others. Mm. Of course, we want to share that information with the medical staff. If there's a situation where they say a gun was used, that is something that we would want to share. And even in those situations, before we go share it, we're having a conversation with that patient and saying, this is something that I'm going to have to share. We are very clear about the moments where we have to break the confidentiality with that patient. Confidentiality is really important for many of our patients in the sense that we want to have the advocate be a person that they can talk to without feeling that what they say is going to be shared with the police against their will or shared even with the medical staff against their will. If they share something that the advocate thinks is important for the medical staff to know, say, in terms of their care, then, you know, we would obviously have a conversation with that survivor and say, this is something that could be really important. Let's talk about why you don't want to share it. And maybe we can come to a solution as far as making sure that you're getting the best care that you need. But our advocates are not required to tell, you know, like if a police officer says, well, what do you think about what they're saying? We don't offer an opinion. We don't share information that's not explicitly said to be shared or given permission by the survivor themselves. Same thing with medical staff. Like I said, if a 12-year-old came in, that's a very tricky situation. It's a, a young child in many people's eyes, but in the eyes of the law and in the situation that they find themselves in in the emergency department, they could say, I would like to have a forensic exam, but I don't want to do the evidence collection. And that's up to that child, right, in this particular case. Hmm. And can you talk a little bit about 
the cultural sensitivity, a phrase that you know now is very important in any sort of trauma training, medical training. And I know that Mount Sinai has a specific program in this area for the Hasidic community, for example, where people are trained in Jewish law and Jewish requirements around this subject to counsel these people specifically. In your job as a trainer, how much are you helping people understand the way this presents in different communities, in LGBT communities, for example, or other types of groups of people? Right. So I would say that no one survivor is exactly like another, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody comes from their own community, their own culture, their own life experience. So one of the things that we really try to work with our new volunteers that are coming in through our training is to have them, again, meet the survivor where they're at, not making assumptions, trying to understand that different people may have different viewpoints and perspectives. We approach it from a very non-judgmental standpoint. And we do talk about throughout the training, the different types of diversity in culture and experience that our patients come to the ED with. So that could be, as you were mentioning, in the Jewish Orthodox community, we have a program called the Takano program. And that program is helmed by one of our clinicians who works with survivors within the Orthodox community to provide both religiously and culturally sensitive care for those survivors. Like you said, they understand the community norms and social mores that they follow. And so able to provide the culturally sensitive treatment. As far as our advocates, we don't have a very specific training for them as far as, you know, working with the Orthodox community or any other very specific religious minority or anything like that. We really try to introduce multiple different types of cultural sensitivity throughout the training. So that could be talking about working with immigrant survivors and what are some of the concerns that they may face that are unique to their community, or working with, like you said, LGBTQIA plus survivors, and what are some of the concerns that may be unique to their community. Additionally, you know, youth and adolescents, as I mentioned, or as you can imagine, there are people that come in that seek treatment that are in this kind of window of age. Teens and adolescents may have say like, this is inappropriate behavior. I expected them to behave like this, but I didn't want them to do this. And so kind of trying to understand what may be different for each survivor that comes into our emergency department and really just meet them where they're at and say, we're here in a very open and non-judgmental supportive place. What can we do to listen to and assess what your needs are and how to support you best through that? And let me ask about the impact of the pandemic. The UN put out a report last year detailing increased rates of violence against women in general. And there's been a lot of reporting on a possible undocumented rise in sexual violence during the pandemic as people were not able to come to hospitals and they were cooped up in their homes. Children weren't in school where teachers might be picking up on alarming clues of violence. What was your experience on how the pandemic affected Savvy's work? Well, the pandemic had a profound effect, I think, in many ways for both survivors and for the programs that serve them. There was, of course, at the beginning of the pandemic, the period of time where everything went into lockdown. And it's absolutely 
certain that people were experiencing sexual violence or intimate partner violence during that time, but not reporting it as frequently as they would have pre-pandemic and pre-lockdown. People were afraid to come into the hospital for care because they didn't know what this virus was. And, you know, as the pandemic moved on and we became, you know, more aware and the vaccines were available and people became more comfortable, you know, reporting again and coming into the hospital to seek care. But certainly there was a remarkable time during the beginning of the pandemic where the number of cases that we saw coming into the emergency department were far lower than what they would normally be. And it certainly was not that it wasn't happening. Right. It was, of course, still happening. But that is the nature of when people are stuck together, especially when you're talking about intimate partner violence. There was a lot of talk about what could happen with people that are stuck together in their home 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no reprieve and no ability to get out or seek care. And there were also times where, you know, even a fear of the virus was used as a controlling tactic by some abusive partners. We saw cases where people were brought into the hospital because their partner said that they were feeling suicidal. And really, they weren't at all, but their partner knew that they were terribly afraid of coming into the emergency department because of the COVID. And so they used that as a way to get them in a situation where they were really afraid and scared, and it was a control. Yeah. And so... Oh, my gosh. So we tried to do our best to serve the people that did come in during that time. And certainly, we've seen an increase and a return to probably greater than normal pre-pandemic levels of people coming into the hospital for care. It's been busy. I think also, interestingly, and this is very anecdotal, I don't have a statistical analysis of this, but people are, you know, making up for lost time in the last couple of years. And so you're talking about going out and dating and social events and all of these things introduce opportunity for assaults to happen. And so we are seeing, because of that increase in the social activity, a bit of a bump in the number of people that are coming in after having been assaulted. Wow. I had never thought about that, but that makes perfect sense. Huh. Again, that's anecdotal. I don't have a statistical analysis of that, but it certainly seems that that could be the case. All right. Let me turn to my last area of questions, your work as an educator and training volunteers. And I understand that before you became the volunteer coordinator and trainer, you were a volunteer yourself. Is that right? That is correct. Can you talk about how you became involved with the program, how you came to this work? Yeah, absolutely. So I first became involved with Savvy. I applied to be a volunteer advocate myself in 2007. I had just finished my master's program in forensic psychology. I was looking for work in the field, but also outside of the field. And this filled two meaningful pieces for me, right? Like I wanted to be connected to the field in which I studied, but also I wanted to do this work because I had people close to me, friends and family that had experienced intimate partner violence and sexual assault. And I wanted to do the work to really be there in a way that maybe I wasn't able to be there for them, but also participate in my community, my new community, 
I didn't grow up in New York, but this was, you know, where I was living and what I wanted to do. And so I became involved with Savvy for those reasons. And I trained as a volunteer advocate and I was actively on call as a volunteer advocate until 2014 when I had my first child. And then I participated as a troubleshooter for our volunteers. And I participated as a facilitator at our trainings to, you know, help guide new advocates into their role. And the work is just so meaningful and has just really stuck with me. I've always wanted to stay with it. And I could talk forever about why I think advocates are important and the amazing work that they do. But that's what brought me here to this place. And I think a lot of people come to volunteering with Savvy because of their own experience with sexual assault or intimate partner violence or the experience of their loved ones and really wanting to be there for people in those moments in a way that they had support or in a way that they didn't have support and not wanting somebody to go through that alone by themselves. I'd love to hear you expand on that a bit more, Silva, your own experience, because I think with clinical training, the emphasis is on doing, doing something to the person, giving them something to make them feel better, very action-oriented. And you very powerfully described the importance of listening and responding. And I'd love to hear your experience as a volunteer and to how powerful that was for someone in the ER to have that type of person and that type of experience to sort of offset all of the activity and sort of aggressive intervention that the clinical staff can offer, which is many times needed. And I'm not criticizing it as being overzealous or anything, but just to have this counterpoint from your own perspective, how you saw it play out with people. Well, listening is really the foundation of the work that we do. When somebody has gone through a traumatic assault, the most important thing that our advocate can do is to listen and to really give a time and a space for somebody to process what they've been through and to feel validated in their experience and the feelings that that experience brings up for them. And You know, that's one thing that we really talk about a lot in our trainings, and I talk a lot about with my volunteer advocates, is how can we really support a person in a calm, anchoring, listening way? What can we do to make sure that they really feel that they're being heard and that they are being understood? Because it can be confusing, and so having somebody that can sit with them and help them process and get that process started, right, is really important and vital in the care that they continue to receive ongoing. Yeah, thank you for that answer. That's beautifully put. You talked about that you had some experience with friends and family, and that brings a lot of people to the volunteer program. Are people coming, would you say, primarily from the medical clinical world or the social worker world, or is it really just a range of different backgrounds? It's a range. It's a real range. We have some people that come because, like I said, the violence has touched their lives in a way that has motivated them to do the work. We have some people that come because they want to enter a field that is a caring profession, whether it be they're going to go to med school or they're studying to become a social worker or they want to be a licensed psychologist or anything like that. We have people that come in that way. But we also have people that come just wanting to help people in their community that feel passionate about 
making sure survivors are heard and supported and not left alone in the emergency department and beyond. Yeah. And how long does the training go on for? It's a 40-hour training. That's a pretty normal standard, I think, across most programs in the United States. And it really is a comprehensive training in the sense that we cover the dynamics of sexual assault. We cover the dynamics of intimate partner violence. As I said, we talk about the different cultural sensitivities. We talk about the different groups and diversities that you may see in the emergency department. We have speakers come from the community to talk about their role. So we have people from law enforcement, people from the DA's office, people who are experts in forensic exams that talk to our new volunteer advocates to really inform them about what their job is, specifically so that we can help the survivor understand what is happening and who they're interacting with. We also have guest speakers that come to our training that are survivors themselves and share their stories so that people can have that experience of the different perspectives and the different experiences that these survivors have. Some of them have had great experiences in the emergency department. Some of them have had very horrible experiences. And all of that is to help our advocates understand just how different things can be from one person to the next. Mm -hmm. And then once a volunteer finishes training, they sign up for shifts or they're on call or how does the placement work? Once a person has finished the training, they are all set to sign up for shifts. Our shifts are six hours at a time. We have 24-hour coverage, seven days a week, ideally. Sometimes we have a shift that's unfilled here and there, a little bit more so after the pandemic, but we're working on remedying that problem right now with our upcoming training. But When they're on call, they're on call to any of our sites. We have a a centralized system where a hospital will call our call center, and then the call center reaches out to whoever's on call, and then they head into the emergency department as soon as they get that phone call, and they're there with that person, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for their full shift. Sometimes survivors need support beyond the end of a person's shift, and in which case we try to facilitate a handoff with the next advocate that we have on call. And if people are interested in becoming volunteers or learning more about the program, where should they go? Oh, that's a good question. So the Mount Sinai Savvy website would be the best place. We have a link to our application and we have kind of an ongoing application acceptance. So we train every year new folks. We are doing two trainings a year, typically one in the spring and one in the fall. And so if you apply and it's not in time for one of those trainings, the next one will be coming up pretty quickly after that. And we're always looking for new folks. So they can just go to www.mssm.edu backslash savvy, S-A-V-I. Great. Silva Sergenian, thank you so much for the incredible work you are doing on behalf of people affected by sexual violence and best of luck in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Jennifer. I've really appreciated talking with you and I hope that this has been enlightening and look forward to maybe some of your listeners becoming volunteers themselves. Let's hope. Mm-hmm. 